Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of childhood abuse and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a Saturday night in the late 1990s, the London streets were crowded with pub goers and panhandlers. A brightly colored man pulled up to the curb across the street. A blood red cross was slashed across the colors like a gaping wound. Regulars on the street shifted nervously, giving up their calls for change, trying to go unnoticed. One man, a former soldier, turned and ran. Out of the vehicle came people, mostly young men, in blue and green combat jackets. They started to sing and called out to passers-by, trying to hand out their leaflets. Even when they were ignored, they never stopped smiling. From across the street, a young man watched as they led one or two other street people to their bus. James had only been unhoused a few days after his mom kicked him out for being gay. He couldn't see why the other panhandlers seemed scared of them. When he asked the regulars who those people were, they gave an ominous warning. That's the kidnap cult. People go with them and don't always come back. The Jesus Army. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we examined Noel Stanton's rise from a part-time minister of a village church to the leader of the Jesus Army. Over the years, he promised his followers a community where every aspect of their lives was dedicated to worshiping God. But the reality was a highly restrictive existence that Noel dictated. This week, we'll talk about how, despite continued accusations of targeting vulnerable populations, Noel was further increasing his following. However, after Noel died in 2009, the skeletons were let out of their closets, resulting in the dissolution of his legacy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. By the late 1980s, 60-year-old Noel Stanton had been the leader of the Jesus Fellowship for about two decades. Under his command, Bug Brook Baptist had evolved from a village church to a massive network of communes spanning multiple counties in the English Midlands. The operation even included multiple successful businesses that brought in vast sums yearly. Despite growing worry among locals that the group was a cult, membership still rose. People like young Philippa Muller's parents were inspired by the idea of living a simple life dedicated entirely to Christ. Philippa shared her story with the Northampton Chronicle in 2017. According to the article, her father quit his job with the Ministry of Defense, sold their possessions, and made the move to Bugbrook. Philippa's family moved into one of the communes near Bugbrook in the mid-80s when she was five years old. At first, the promise of a simple agrarian life devoted to Christ seemed to be fulfilled. For Philippa, there were picnics and plenty of other kids around to play with in the fields. But this sunny, idyllic picture had a shadowy underside. Like most of the children, Philippa was too young to stay focused during the many hours-long meetings the fellowship held. So she spent a lot of time laying beneath the chairs, doodling and dreaming. 
One day during a service, a community elder found Philippa's doodles and grew inexplicably angry. Shortly after, they whisked Philippa away to a private room where the elder performed an exorcism on her. Young Philippa felt bewildered and terrified. She had no idea what she'd done wrong. The issue wasn't that she had doodled, but rather the crude figures drawn by her child's hand appeared to be naked. Nakedness and anything to do with the body was strictly forbidden. Noel routinely preached about the sin inherent to the body, specifically the genitals. He often called on the congregation to, quote, give our genitals to Jesus. Noel pushed celibacy because he believed celibacy led to spiritual freedom. Years later, Philippa told reporters, I grew up assuming there was something wrong with me. I could never attain redemption because I was born of Eve. When Philippa was still a child, she was molested by two teenage boys in the fellowship, but she never reported it. She knew, if anyone even believed her, it would be seen as her fault. Because the commune resided in such a rural, isolated environment, there weren't any non-fellowship adults in her life she might have confided in. This type of isolation is what helps cult leaders maintain control over their followers. Vanessa's going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In the late 1970s, U.S. reporters Carol Stoner and Joanne Park studied the relationship between traditional religious groups and religious cults like the Jesus Fellowship. Their conclusion was the differences were more pronounced than the similarities. Namely, cults sought to isolate their followers from the outside world, for instance, by moving them to isolated rural communities. Unlike many religious groups, cults demanded total loyalty to the group and absolute obedience to religious leaders. Religious cults also exposed members to a rigorous resocialization process before demanding they reject society entirely to build a utopia. While most of the Fellowship's foundations were technically biblical concepts, Knoll's emphasis on isolation was extreme. By the late 80s, this cultic dark side of the Fellowship, previously hidden by isolation, was coming dangerously close to being exposed. Knoll needed to rebrand if he wanted to keep expanding. He seemed particularly inspired by the New Testament image of the Army of God. In 1985, he started Operation Mark and put out the call for young people, especially men, ready to become Jesus commandos in a war for British souls. In this battle, they weren't only up against the devil, but also fellow Christians who had let themselves become too much a part of the world. Having established a presence over the entire countryside between London and Birmingham, Noel needed zealous young soldiers to lead the charge into the cities. To Knoll, large urban centers represented modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. They were rife with souls lost in all kinds of sin, the types of traumatized populations that made perfect prey. The young men of the fellowship responded with all the fervor Knoll could have hoped for. Planning meetings soon became war councils, and street preaching became the invasion. All the talk of battles and weapons was very masculine and exciting. It reinvigorated the young men's dedication to the fellowship lifestyle. The group drew on biblical narratives for inspiration, imagining themselves as fearless warriors for Christ. They saw themselves as modern-day apostles, committed to spreading Jesus' message, even through hardship. 
Knoll outlined a two-year program of what he called explosive pioneering, setting the goal of securing 250 new members and establishing 50 new church households. The fellowship continued caravanning into more urban towns, hoping to reach new audiences. Members reserved public parks or sometimes entire fairgrounds and set up a golden tent that was large enough to hold 500 people. Any members already living in or near the towns they hit spent the days and weeks leading up to these events plastering the area with flyers that promised physical healing and demonic release sessions. To those in the area, it seemed that Noel was holding good old-fashioned tent revivals. These marquee campaigns lasted for about a week. During the day, the commandos trolled the streets for lost souls, inviting them back to the tent for nightly meetings with worship and preaching. Noel took God's command in Isaiah to bring the homeless poor into your house, literally, instructing his commandos to target who he called the forgotten people. Unhoused youth, addicts, and the poor, society's most vulnerable populations, became unsuspecting prey. The weeks wrapped up with a special headline appearance by Noel, usually on a Saturday night. There were water tanks ready for those who wished to be baptized. Noel even encouraged those who were already Christian to be re-sanctified. These do-over baptisms didn't sit well with local clergy, who saw them as a sign of Noel's disdain of other Christians. They had already been warning people about the fellowship and accused Noel of sheep-stealing. All of this on top of Noel not informing them of his plans ahead of time. But their harsh words came with no further action. Tensions continued to simmer. It wasn't just local Christians Noel had to watch out for, especially in the wake of the pamphlet printed by ex-members in the mid-80s, most of the general public saw Noel's congregation as a threat. At an event in Nottingham, angry locals threw Molotov cocktails at the fellowship tent. The tent sustained only minimal damage, but these attacks certainly lent credence to Noel's idea that they were at war with the secular world. He spun the vandalism and negative press into signals that they were on the right track. His followers were doing something bold and new, and the enemy acted scared. He likely reminded them that the Romans hadn't taken kindly to the early Christians either. Despite the attacks, the revivals were successful, adding a couple of hundred members to Knoll's ranks. Amid the rush of increased activity, in June 1986, a mysterious death added fuel to the opposition's fire. The body of 25-year-old Mohammed Majid, who'd been staying at the New Creation Farm, was found in an underground water tank on the farm. Allegedly, Majid told his fellowship-assigned mentor that he felt hot and wanted to go swimming in the tank. The mentor warned that it was dangerous and forbidden. However, later that afternoon, members found some of the man's clothes near the tank's entrance and called the fire department. Later reports stated Majid had a history of acute psychosis. According to his doctor, he'd once been found by police jogging along a highway talking about seeing angels. In such a state, Majid probably needed a doctor more than a shepherd. While the coroner described the case as bizarre, they ultimately ruled the death accidental. But after this incident, Northampton's Member of Parliament, Michael Morris, led an effort against Noel. Majid's death seemed to be proof that the group was a threat to public safety. In 1986, Morris asked the Northampton Borough Council to ban the fellowship from using public lands and buildings for their meetings. Fortunately for Noel, the council didn't share Morris's fears 
and ruled in the fellowship's favor. However, the continued opposition only fueled Knoll's efforts. That same month, the Fellowship published their first issue of the Jesus Army magazine. The headline read, All Out War. Inside, Knoll wrote, Britain is sinking into moral chaos. Only a moral and spiritual revolution in the power of the living Lord Jesus Christ will change that. That revolution might shake the nation and change its heart. And God is forming an army of Christians who are ready to pay the price. Whether it was by God's hand or Knowles, the Jesus Fellowship had no shortage of followers ready to become soldiers. Knowles' army wasn't going down without a fight. Coming up, Knowles takes his army public. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now back to the story. From 1985 to 1987, under threat of exposure for his cultish ways, Noel Stanton had honed his mass campaign strategy while laying the groundwork for a new public image. The military symbolism that had been reserved for recruiting now seeped into the rest of the church. He set aside a war fund from the community trust to be used on their tent campaigns and other outreach efforts. Noel rebranded the community houses as battle stations. The revival tent was renamed as the battlefield and inner city houses became battlefronts. Noel took the shifting imagery as an opportunity to further consolidate the all-male leadership. In 1987, he established the Jesus Army War Battle Operations Network, or Jawbone. In essence, it served as a new web of management that gave every member someone above them to report to. At the top were Knoll's top brass, known as the Covering Authority, who ran households and toured other church communes to nurture the converts more effectively. Below them, the church had hundreds of elders, or men in leadership positions throughout the community. The fellowship elders were meant to monitor smaller groups of members, reporting up the chain on everyone's spiritual status. In this way, Noel could be assured that everyone across the community followed his spiritual commands. While Jawbone secured things on the home front, Noel turned his focus back to recruitment. He wanted to make sure his people were easily identifiable on the streets, so he decided they needed a uniform. Jesus Army men would wear combat jackets, while the women donned green skirts. To go with the new look, Noel gave his followers a new battle cry, blood, fire, and covenant. The Rambo look did nothing to curry favor with local Christian leaders. The focus on warfare, spiritual or otherwise, just didn't sit well with many. In the press, the Jesus Army was called menacing and sinister. However, the criticism didn't affect Noel or the Fellowship. They'd come to pity other Christians for their lack of commitment and foresight. Noel's vision had crystallized. Having learned a lot about branding from running the Fellowship's many successful businesses, he designed the Army's new logo, 
a blood red cross slashed between the words, Jesus Army. Finally, Noel had worked out all the details. Everyone understood their place and role. They had their uniform, a refined campaign, and a war cry. On April 18, 1987, 61-year-old Noel officially launched what had been brewing behind the scenes. The newly branded Soldiers of the Jesus Army marched through the streets of London, holding banners and singing. The crowd rallied and pledged full loyalty, committing to sacrifice and hardship. In a public commissioning ceremony, a speaker from the covering authority read the church's 15 clause manifesto in front of a map of the UK. The map was littered with pins representing Jesus Army activity. A small group broke off to deliver letters to the Prime Minister and the Queen. In them, Noel urged the leaders to call the nation back to faith in God and promised to, quote, bring the gospel to the victims of vice. Much to Noel's delight, the march didn't go unnoticed. However, not all of the press showed the group in a positive light. Shortly after the march, the Milton Keynes Gazette reported on this rebranded outreach wing of the fellowship when they interviewed a 23-year-old Jesus Army member living on one of the group's farms near Bugbrook. He said every morning he commuted half an hour to Milton Keynes, where he worked in an unemployment center. At the end of the day, he'd be picked up by Jesus Army Brothers and taken to London's Soho district. From 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. every night, he evangelized to drug dealers, pimps, and sex workers. After a long night of outreach, they would all make the nearly two-hour drive back to Bugbrook. This particular soldier then had just enough time to shower and leave for work to do it all again. Just a typical day in the life of a Jesus Army soldier. While the press wasn't glowing, Noel didn't seem to mind because the grueling work paid off. By December of 1987, the fellowship boasted 49 households with 900 adults and 200 children living in them. The launch of the Jesus Army had been the reset Noel had hoped for. But even though they were drawing in fresh young members, Noel still wasn't content. After years spent on the fringes of Christian society, Noel craved validation from traditional church leaders. To help win them over, in April of 1988, Noel sent 400 Jesus Army soldiers to participate in the March for Jesus, a massive public event organized by national Christian leaders. However, their reception to Noel's participation was lukewarm at best. They wanted to believe in Noel's good intentions, but were cautious in light of the fellowship's recent changes. Undeterred, Noel continued his attempts by meeting with nearby pastors. But for all the work he did locally, Noel was soon rebuffed on a national level. In October, the Daventry Weekly Express ran a story about a young potential member who supposedly fled the fellowship after several weeks, feeling suicidal and manipulated. Despite this continued pushback in the press, Noel held his course into the new decade. Just like the previous one, Noel manipulated the trappings of 90s youth culture to attract new members. The group's events in Trafalgar Square began featuring airbrushed shirts and breakdancing. Noel brought back music festivals, which held on bank holidays three times a year at Cornhill. The church's in-house band played popular-sounding tunes. The events drew huge crowds and began with baptisms on Friday and continued over the long weekend. Once Noel had new converts on board, he worked to keep them in the fold. Noel unveiled a new strategy to help with retention by placing recruits on a leadership track. 
He instituted spiritual mentoring between elders and newly converted young men who'd been identified as potential leaders. Having targeted those with serious mental health struggles, such as addiction and histories of abuse, Noel needed new leaders because the community had filled up with traumatized individuals. He'd recently emphasized healing through prayer, but not every soul could be mended that way alone. However, that was all Noel and his leaders were truly equipped to offer. These individuals were being counseled not by trained mental health professionals, but by religious fanatics. In a 2008 study titled Joining and Leaving a New Religious Movement, researchers for the Center of Psychology of Religion at the Catholic University of Louvain found that membership in a new religious movement compensated for previously existing vulnerabilities, like insecure attachment styles, a lack of social relationships, and negative life events. One of these recruits was a former soldier. He'd been sexually abused as a child and was likely promised healing if he gave himself over to the fellowship. Far from finding that healing, in 1992, authorities sentenced the 40-year-old to two years in prison for repeatedly sexually abusing his daughter. Authorities found that the abuse had gone on for three years and was only discovered when the girl was found crying in a cupboard at her school. The man's defense told the court that he'd contemplated suicide because of his sexual urges. Since he lived in the small, closely monitored community, it's hard to believe that no one knew what he was doing. After word broke of the arrest, the fellowship took a strange approach. A leader in the Jesus Fellowship Church said that the man would be welcomed back into the community after serving his time. After all, Christianity was all about forgiveness. However, the report of the man's crimes reminded the British public about the shadowy side of the fellowship. Unveiling the Jesus Army had been a successful distraction for a time, a lightning rod drawing fire away from the fellowship itself. But its true purpose was recruitment, and humans come with all sorts of baggage, especially the ones the fellowship courted. Coming up, the dark truth of the past is brought into the light, resulting in the end of the Jesus Army. Now back to the story. With the development of his new outreach wing, the Jesus Army, Noel Stanton had performed an impressive bit of misdirection. For a while, Noel deflected attention away from concerns over the cultish nature of the fellowship as a whole. However, all of the campaigns and events were costing Noel a pretty penny. By 1994, membership in the community houses, a major source of funding, was in decline and finances were getting stretched. Noel's original vision was for the majority of members to live in a community where all of their time and income went into the church. However, with the cult rumors and reports of abuse that plagued him, that lifestyle became an increasingly harder sell. To give the impression of leniency, Joel had previously instituted three tiers of membership. Style 1 members were baptized and attended regular meetings, but lived on their own. Style 3 meant members were all in on communal living, and Style 2 fell somewhere in between. By the mid-90s, many of the fellowship's members were Style 1 or 2. The lack of people living on the properties and providing extremely cheap labor to the fellowship's businesses meant the cost of operation had begun to outpace the group's income. Despite this claim, according to multiple news reports, Knowles' church businesses still grossed millions of pounds annually. Whenever questioned about where the money went, Knoll quickly said everything flowed back into the community. 
This appeared to be at least somewhat true. Throughout the 1990s, Noel continued to expand the Northampton headquarters and other facilities affiliated with the church. That growth, however, wasn't happening exactly where Noel hoped it would. New members were more likely to join at the lower pressure Style 1 or 2. Some Style 3 followers were even downgrading because of the tough commitment. To combat this, Noel doubled down on his monthly Eat, Drink and Pray missions. For four days, army soldiers walked city streets into the early morning, looking for unhoused people and partiers, who they'd invite back to their bus with the promise of tea and food. Once on the bus, members offered prayer and invited anyone who seemed receptive back to their community houses. These missions resulted in many unhoused young people joining their communities, especially at the new creation farm. It was a much needed source of fresh labor. Over the years, the particular method of recruitment earned them the nickname, the Kidnap Cult. London's unhoused population especially came to fear the Jesus Army, despite their seemingly benign offer of charity. In 1995, journalist Fiona MacDonald Smith with The Independent, a British newspaper, went undercover to get first-hand experience. In the West End of London, she and two young men were approached with offers of warm beds and food for the weekend and taken to New Creation Farm. During her stay, she and the others were shuttled two and a half hours to Manchester for a multimedia evangelizing event. Between the flashing lights and thumping music, the experience seemed designed to be more like a rave than a church gathering. But alongside the modern touches, the fellowship members still openly and dramatically emoted, crying out or laughing hysterically. They spoke in tongues and fell to the floor. When Noel finally came to the stage, he didn't give the typical brash performance of a fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. Instead, he spoke rhythmically and constantly over all the noise from the congregation, which wasn't to say his preaching lacked passion. He had full command of the crowd. The effect was hypnotic, drawing the crowd further into their frenzy. Ultimately, her experience ended up being rather uneventful. She saw Noel skulking around the farm, but had no interaction with him. No one tried to manipulate her into staying. She and the young men she'd arrived with were free to leave at the end of the weekend. But one of them chose to stay. She wrote, I asked him when he was going back. Back to what, he replied scornfully, then shrugged. Noel knew that by targeting those with nothing, they would eventually owe him everything. Or as he put it, in community houses, we must have holiness, standards, discipline. Most people coming off the streets come to appreciate the need for that. A right authority gives security. In exchange for that authority and security, any government benefits these unhoused individuals received were put into the communal purse. Their policy of taking in any and everybody off the street meant all manner of characters were passing through the doors of the fellowship's homes and some of them were dangerous criminals. In the early 90s, the Northampton Chronicle and Echo reported that a man suspected of murdering a family of three sought refuge with the fellowship. Spokeswoman Liz Donovan quickly clarified that the man had made contact, but was never a resident of any of the fellowship houses. The story was a hit with readers, though. Northampton residents had never been particularly fond of the fellowship, so they were desperate to know every salacious detail. But reporters at The Echo kept digging. The outlet found that a sex offender known as the Wolfman had lived in one of the Northampton houses in the 1980s when he was on the run from the police. 
Donovan admitted to having a record of him staying at one of the communes for five or six days before stealing a car and leaving. The man was given life in prison in 1986, having pled guilty to 12 charges, including the rape of two children, arson and robbery. But outsiders weren't the only ones taking advantage of the community. Many members perpetrated terrible acts against each other. While most were protected by Knoll's command to handle everything internally, a few incidents became public knowledge. In 1997, authorities sentenced a 29-year-old member to three months in jail for molesting a then 12-year-old fellowship member. After his conviction, the fellowship allowed him to return to the commune where he had a wife and child. The victim had already left the group, but not before Noel threatened the girl with damnation for abandoning the fellowship. Around this time, Philippa Muller witnessed an elder molesting another member. The elder was arrested, tried, and eventually sent to jail for sexual abuse. But during the trial, Noel made Philippa a target in the community. He dedicated an entire sermon to ridding the fellowship of liars. Philippa squirmed in her seat, knowing full well the speech was directed at her. The only society she'd ever known shunned her, and she fled at age 18. With each public incident, Fellowship Communications Officer John Campbell promised they would review and improve their child protection policy. But any changes resulting from these cases were unsuccessful. Just two years later, in 1999, another young male member was brought to court. Authorities found the 19-year-old guilty of committing statutory rape of a 12-year-old girl. This many bad apples should have been a sign that the bunch needed close inspecting. And yet, even with these reports out in the news, authorities never held Noel accountable for the heinous acts that happened under his watch. The promises to look into these events were never followed up on by outside authorities. Over the next decade, membership numbers continued to climb. But Noel's time in control couldn't last forever. As he grew older, his health started fading. He didn't possess the same energy that propelled his movement to such great heights. In the face of quickly failing health, 82-year-old Noel named Mick Haynes his successor and passed over leadership in April 2009. At this point, the fellowship had thousands of members across the UK and also boasted of including satellite congregations in Ghana and the Netherlands. A month later, on May 20, 2009, Noel Stanton died of an undisclosed disease. The fellowship held a memorial service at one of their properties and set up screenings at overflow sites. It was a good thing because roughly 2,000 followers showed up. While Noel had gone, his last bit of control lingered. Their new leader, Mick, led the crowd through nine songs Noel selected. Later in the service, a video tribute showed Noel performing baptisms and preaching through the years. After the final clip of Noel's last sermon before stepping down, the audience reportedly gave a long, standing ovation. A member noted that Noel's death was a loss to humanity that was second only to Jesus. To many, it must have truly seemed that way. According to the speeches at the funeral, he was dedicated to saving people in every possible way, from drugs, from poverty, and the devil. It seemed undeniable that hundreds of people had found beauty and healing among the fellowship, but hundreds more met a darker fate. 
In 2013, four years after Noel's death, Mick Haynes made a surprising move. After being inspired by the Methodist Church, Haynes initiated the process of inviting reports of past abuse from members and former members. With Noel no longer around to hold them closed, the floodgates opened, and every dirty little secret of the Jesus Fellowship came pouring out. In 2015, Haynes took the outcome of this initiative to the Northampton Police, which resulted in several arrests on charges of physical and sexual abuse of children. As part of the inquiry, Haynes agreed to commission an audit of its current safety procedures from an independent agency. The Church's Child Protection Advisory Service Committee, a charity-run organization, reviewed the Church's current guidelines around protecting children from abuse. In 2016, the Chronicle and Echo reported that Mick Haynes admitted there had been some accusations made against Noel. Haynes said, the allegations are of financial abuse of individuals and spiritual and sexual abuse. We are not in receipt of all of the facts, but we are seeking to move forward in bringing a new culture that is distinct from the past. The lead investigator for the police said two allegations had been made in 2015 about abuse committed by Noel in the 70s and 80s. They'd been fully investigated, but ultimately no criminal cases were opened. Several victims stepped forward to share their stories, including Philippa Muller, whose family had joined the Jesus Fellowship when she was just a child. Accounts like Philippa's were far too common. She and other victims coming forward formed a support network called Jesus Fellowship Survivors to share legal and therapeutic resources. As a result of the investigations, 43 people were identified as perpetrators of historic acts of sexual, physical, and spiritual abuse. By 2019, at least five had been convicted of various offenses. In May 2019, after hundreds of victims had reported accusations, church leadership voted to disband. Their numbers had been declining in the years since the sexual abuse report came out. The fellowship put out a formal apology to those affected by past abuse and established a formal redress scheme to provide compensation. But just before its closure, the BBC reported the fellowship's businesses, real estate holdings, and the group's trust was valued at approximately 50 million pounds. An independent investigator filed an 800-page report, which stated all five surviving members of the covering authority, Knoll's inner circle, must take responsibility for their inaction. It found their mishandling of reports amounted to covering up past abuse, protecting, and enabling known sex offenders. Northamptonshire police, however, found no evidence of criminal offenses. Criminal cover-up or not, the Jesus Fellowship and its outreach wing, the Jesus Army, no longer officially exist. Many of its scattered congregations formed smaller independent churches. As of August 2020, about 180 people were still living in former fellowship communal houses all over England. Hopefully, without Noel Stanton's continued influence, these groups have learned from the past, but calling a rose by a different name doesn't change the bloom. And the same could be said of cults. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. Among our many sources, we found the book Fire in Our Hearts by Simon Cooper and Mike Parent extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 